In this episode of Turning the Tables, we're going to listen to two very critical perspectives on development issues discussed at the Turning the Tables workshop that took place at the University of Ottawa on November 5th, 2019. First, a European perspective, and the second, a perspective on and from the North. The two speakers are Constanza Musu, Associate Professor for Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa, and Syed Sajadur Rahman, Senior Fellow at the School of International Development and Globalization Studies at the University of Ottawa. In her presentation titled, Perspectives in and on Europe, Constanza Musu provides an important perspective on Europe, both from political and security aspects. We then hear Syed Sajadur Rahman giving a presentation titled Perspectives in and on the North, where he provides a nuanced perspective on the challenges that the traditional North now faces, especially with the emergence of powerful new global powers, such as China. My name is Constanza Muzu, and I'm an associate professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. My area of specialty is actually kind of different. <laughs> um, I don't work so much on development, I work on international security. Uh, but I've also worked uh, uh, a lot on European foreign policy. Uh, particularly over European Union and uh, the, the way that the EU has shaped uh, the uh, its policy towards the Middle East. Um, so I thank the organizer for inviting me uh, to this event today. Uh, my perspective, uh, or rather my comments here will be uh, about the way that uh, Europe has... Uh, try to shape its political identity uh, following World War II and uh, in you know the, the, the latest changes in uh, the past uh, 10 or so years or maybe even less than that uh, so we in in our small group well, we discussed uh, this topic a little bit and, and particularly we started from uh, the acknowledgement that uh, a lot of what we study here at the university uh, and elsewhere, certainly in uh, uh, in uh, Western university, is very much uh, both from a, a history, an international history point of view, and international relation, international relation theory, is very Eurocentric. Uh, the scholars that we study are mostly Europeans. When we talk about, I, I teach uh, an introduction to international relations and uh, I teach international theory of international relations. And they are all theories of international relations that are very much the intellectual product of uh, uh, first uh, European and then North American uh, thinkers. And this shapes the way that, well, first of all, it shaped the way that I thought about the world uh, growing up uh, in Italy and then uh, studying in the UK and then teaching here. Obviously, I have transmitted that type of background to all the students that I have had since because that's the training that I have received. Um, and it's very much informed by this uh, uh, 
this understanding of the international system as uh, in a way grounded in the political notions of uh, statehood uh, as viewed or as in a way uh, created uh, by European political thinkers. So the idea of separate political entities with uh, uh, to a degree f uh, seriously well into the you know, the, in the, from the 19th and the 20th century, a correspondence between um, political borders uh, and, and some level of political identity, although this is obviously opens up a whole set of other considerations. Um, and uh, in the group we discuss, and I discuss with my students also this idea that all the notion of uh, liberalism and uh, the international liberal order uh, really stem from this European-centric or Western-centric notion. What is the ideal, and that, that very much starts from this notion, what is the ideal political system? The ideal political system is a state-based system with sovereign states that are uh, have control over the borders, the monopoly on the use of violence, good old Max Weber, um, on the legitimate use of violence, and uh, uh, with, uh, uh, you know, your... Uh, regular administrative uh, apparatus uh, and uh, the best economic system to be coupled with this uh, with this political system is uh, a system that is essentially the the capitalist system in which uh, growth in an ideal world the growth uh, is uh, positive growth for every country uh, and uh, the growth of one country reinforces that of others. But as we discussed earlier, this uh, particularly after World War II happened in a kind of isolation where this uh, positive sum game system really applied to Europe uh, to North America, to the Commonwealth, if we want to extend that. But really, the in liberal international order was a liberal international order and continues, I would argue, to, to be a liberal international order for one portion of the globe. Uh, and this portion of the globe is very much isolated. And it's and the Europe in that respect is really, a, 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 I think, a, a, an interesting example because what happened until the end of World War II is that obviously all this uh, state system uh, was characterized by infighting, right? The European wars. I mean, I remember as a, as a student going insane, uh, learning every single war of one country against the other, and so of course. Post-World War II, when Europe almost got to the brink of self-destruction, the objective was to create a security community. And this security community would go beyond the infighting of the previous centuries. And the objective, really, that started off with the six countries of the European Union, now 27 and, and a half, uh, depending on where you want to see Great Britain, was to eliminate borders. I mean, a dream is a Kantian dream, right? Again, European thinker, right? Perpetual peace. Uh, it, uh, in, 
maintaining sovereign countries, but at the same time eliminating internal barriers to the movement of people, uh, to the movement of goods, and creating the positive sum game that means that for the first time the growth, economic growth of Germany doesn't mean a threat to uh, to France or to Italy or to any other country. In fact, a positive sum game where you know, a strong Germany and a strong France and a strong Italy, they are all working towards one uh, common good. But this came at the expense of the building of a fortress, right? the fortress Europe, uh, where this wealth doesn't go really much beyond the borders of the inner circle. Right? So Europe had, was in a way, at an inbuilt uh, limit. So the, there was a possibility of enlargement, and of course it went from six to 28 countries, uh, but it cannot go much beyond that as a, because of the way it's been constructed. And so the instrument that Europe has had to uh, bring this, uh, uh, this uh, desired wealth and integration beyond uh, its borders has now I would argue to, to a large degree exhausted itself. Uh, there are no more countries that really have, uh, uh, I mean, there are a few, but minor countries that have uh, possibility of becoming members of the European Union. Uh, countries like Turkey that, that have been members for, uh, well, members, sorry, prospective members for decades have now even forgotten basically about their application in the sense that, you know, there isn't a real possibility for them. And Europe has not really devised the instruments, political or economic, to really deal with its neighborhood. It has tried to deal with its neighborhood in a very, uh, and by neighborhood, I, I mean the eastern neighborhood, but the southern neighborhood as well, by creating very contradictory instruments in which it engaged with countries uh, state to state again. I mean, it's always uh, you know, on, a, on, a, on, on this basis, but with authoritarian regimes, trying to, at the same time, export ideas of democratization that were, in a way, quite kind of one-size-fits-all democratization that doesn't necessarily look at the specificities of other countries. Uh, and while it tried to export these ideas of democratization, it also tried to make economic deals with the with the authoritarian governments that had very little interest in doing democratization because they would lose their grip on power. Uh, so I think from a European perspective, not that I can offer a complete European perspective, but let's say if we want to, I think uh, because of the recent tensions and the, the, you know, confronting itself with the reality of an unsettled neighborhood, we're now coming to a point where Europe doesn't itself know where to, to place its own economic power. Many have talked about an economic giant and a political dwarf uh, because of, uh, of lack of, uh, of unity. Of course, numerically, if we look at the, the economic power of Europe, uh, it is uh, it is indeed very large, uh, but I I think what is uh, now the biggest challenge is for Europe to find its political place now uh, beyond 
its natural alliance with the with the United States, which has been challenged uh, in the past uh, few years by by very tense relation with uh, with the current presidency. But at the same time, you know, having to offer fresh ideas uh, that I don't think are really coming from Europe, as it still struggles to solve its own identity problem. Uh, does Europe have something to offer? that goes beyond uh, just pure economic deals uh, and uh, abstract ideas, or in a way it's kind of a declining uh, unit. I don't really have an answer for all that, but these are some of the topics that we discussed that are you know, on the table for today, I think. We then hear Syed Sajadur Rahman giving a presentation titled perspectives in and on the North. The first thing I want to say is now you know why I didn't want to speak about North America. <laughs> the reason is precisely what you said. It is the tradition of what is North American thing is derived an extension of the Eurocentric thinking that we saw in the 18th or 19th or 20th century. So therefore, if, if we're going to talk about history and international development and last stuff, it doesn't make sense to talk about North America or what the North American philosophy. It makes sense to talk about the North. So that's what, I, that's what we did. We talked about the North. So I, had, I have this one pager. We had a great discussion in our group. So what I'm going to do is a mashup of the discussion in the group and the one pager. And I promise you it's not going to be more than 10 minutes. So there. So the first thing the group discussed was that if the 80s and the 90s were marked by a chaotic retreat of the state in the South as a result of sort of half-hazard opening, uh, uh, opening up to global markets, then at this moment, it's marked by a chaotic retreat of the North, if you like. Um, from, in fact, globalization, They're including the dismantling of alliances, of the traditional post-secondary alliances that were, that were built. The point in the points, uh, the examples are self-evident, Trump and Brexit and disinterest on the part of the citizens of the North in terms of the South, per se, or increasing disinterest. So why, uh, so what is a retreat from? Now I'm going to go back to my notes. So the retreat, it, retreat is from the post-Second World War Bretton Woods institutions, which simply extended the pre-war colonial order. And that those exerted Northern dominance based on a notion of superiority in managing an world order. There is a, there's a chutzpah in this. I mean, there is this assumption that we knew best, that we could manage the world order. You couldn't, you were the colonists, so therefore we are going to manage the world order for you. And the establishment of all the British institutions derived their genesis from that premise, right? So it is based on a Northern value-based rules-oriented international economic order, the dominance was enforced by overwhelming military and financial power of the North at that time, and particularly by US power. 
and growing legitimacy among the like-minded, including the Europeans, about the U.S. as the leader of the free world. In other words, given the economic and military might, they sort of led the process of this hegemonical order. But now, the U.S. and other northern countries are retreating from their global hegemonic roles and are shrinking back into ultranationalism and isolationist shells. These anti-globalization movements in the North have been sparked by a calculation, a differential perceived costs and benefits of integration. This is the famous Rustbelt syndrome, right? So people in Pennsylvania or in Ohio or in parts of Europe are feeling left out because their jobs have just been shipped over to China or to Vietnam or to other places. By community fears, where the losers, the Rustbelt unemployed, subscribes to a more exclusive, more exclusive national identity and anxiety over perceived negative effects of immigration. And this is also self-evident. The Mexican scenario, the both people in Europe, and so on and so forth, right? And cues. Cues meaning the images of opinion leaders in all of these countries with partisan attachment and ideological predispositions. So leaders who espouse ultranationalist views or espouse a sort of, if you like, in your term, a white supremacist rhetoric or a racist rhetoric are gaining ascendance and their views are gaining currency at this point in time. Right. So that's part one of the story, why the current world order is breaking apart. The second part of the story is that the, uh, ironically, the, uh, the actions that were sort of undertaken to maintain the northern hegemony, like the liberalization of global trade and investment, like the spread of pluralistic governance, were the ones that undid the dominance of the northern hegemony. Because these were the mechanisms that sparked the rise of the South and the emergence of competing regional powers like China, India, Brazil. So the developing world now is more middle income, 107 countries in 2019, than low income, 31 countries, right? So all... So there's a significant checkout on both sides. On one hand, the North is retreating back into shells, perceived as a failure because it's no longer able to compete or exert the hegemonic powers that it used to in the sense that, as before, in terms of either technological superiority, military superiority, or innovative superiority. On the other hand, the South is rising and competing for space at the same time. So what's going to shake out, right? And that, that's the question. So what a radical question in this kind of context is, does the South need the North anymore? 
right? Is there any particular reason why the North South would argue for the North, except even in, in terms of dependent nations, because they can depend on other Southern nations rather than the North, right? So because of this, so you have the emergence of the donors. I hate to call them emerging donors because how long do you have to emerge? Like they've been emerging for 10 years. Uh, so they're not, they're donors. But there are three groups of preeminent donors in the world right now. One is the traditional donors, the OECD DAG donors, the uh, donors like China, India, Brazil, and all these regional powers, and the Arab donors. Arab. Right? So, in, and in addition, there has been a fundamental switch in the process, in the ownership of international development processes from the north to the south. What's the indicator of that? I once, did a, once was a part of a research project undertaken by UNDP on figuring out how to assess and evaluate uh, SDGs. And the outcome, as, a, as part of the process, we interviewed a whole set of developing uh, countries. And the outcome of that was incredibly interesting because in the MDGs case, the, the, the developing countries use the MDGs as their planning targets and work towards them. So they were the drivers of the process. In the SDGs case, they were not the drivers of the process. The countries set targets for themselves, the middle-income countries. They use the SDGs as indicators of the targets they set for themselves. And this signal is profound because it signals a change in ownership. I determine what I want to do. If I choose to use an SDG as a target, as an indicator, I might or I might not. And they're selectively, if you like, choosing SDGs to work with. So, given this scenario, how do you, I mean, somebody, I remember talked about uh, that we shouldn't talk about development partnerships anymore. We should talk about repairing partnerships. And I think that kind of resonated with me. The reason is, if you kind of think, sit back, sit back and think about past development partnerships, they're not truly partnership in a sense. There was a hierarchical relationship there, right? Between donors and, and, and recipients and so on and so forth. So repairing sounds nicer. So, but if you're gonna repair this relationship, what do you have to do? And this is where, uh, from the North, North's point of view, right? So what the North has to do is they'll have to figure out who to work with. And there's so many, di many different players right now than before. On what? So you can work on global public goods like climate change, or you can work on country or specific, uh, region specific issues. And more and more, if you look at the indicators, the signals are, that the spread new institutions and the northern aid institutions are starting to veer towards global public goods issues, right? And th there's a reason for that. The reason is they're no longer getting traction, if you like, in the South 
on the southern issues. Okay, and then the questions are about mechanisms. What are the mechanisms that you use to form or repair these partnerships? What kind of instruments do you use? Do you use grants, loans, blended financing? Do you use aid agencies? Do you use development finance institutions? Is the private sector uh, a vehicle for forming these partnerships? What is it? Right? In our discussion, uh, uh, there's an interesting point of view from a civil society perspective, which kind of goes this way, that the cooperation part of aid has disappeared. It was argued. Right? Aid has truly turned, now turned into, the argument was, into a de-risking or leveraging instrument. Right? In the sense of it being a financial instrument rather than a development instrument. So it is just like any other capital flows, like it's like foreign direct investment or portfolio flows. It's just another flow, which is an official flow. Right? How, but the question still remains, I mean, and the question was asked in our group in terms of, but there are still problems in the South. Yes, there are. Like I just pointed out that income inequality was rising as a result of capitalist adoption of capitalist um, forms of production or capitalist economic policies. But the counterfactual to that is, so yeah, income inequality rising. So who, who deals with that? What responsibility does the North have of dealing with income inequality problems in the South? Right? And the argument was that in such a scenario, the roles of NGOs or CSOs, civil society organizations, have increasingly diminished, not only as a result of lesser emphasis being placed in the North on these as vehicles of expressions of partnership, but also relative, uh, the relative maturities of the Southern North NGOs and CSOs. They, don't, they no longer need the Northern CSOs or NGOs as much as they used to, right? So we finally f finished up with uh, sort of in frustration. So what kind of global order do you, do you see? What kind of global order can emerge? And we didn't get an answer to that. We had a question. And I guess in the development studies, since that's the kind of question we should look at. The question was, how to balance hyper-globalization with needs for international codes of conduct? And, and the subtext to that was, what we now have, it seems, are codes of conduct which are market-based. In other words, the MNCs, the multinational corporations, are really not subject to any sovereign authority in any sense. The only authority they're subject to, the only authority they will accede to is the market authority. Now the market will dictate how they behave. But is that a sort of, in, in, a, in a social welfare sense or social maximization sense, is that, is that a good solution? Right? And 
finally, the final point that was made was, is there any way you can decommodify financing? Or finan uh, financial flows in some sense or the other. And that's what you discuss. Thanks very much. The introduction to this podcast series was read by Rika Pugasi. These podcasts were recorded and produced by Radimis Saki. The production of these podcasts received funding from the Ontario Public Interest Research Group at the University of Ottawa and from Professor Sani Yaya at the School of International Development and Globalization Studies at the University of Ottawa. For details and further information, contact Rada Misaki at rhany 96 at uottawa.ca.